Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) The second annual NDC Minnesota is coming up May 6th through 9th. Go to ndcminnesota.com today to register. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Today our show does not have an intro with me and Richard. Instead, we're going to jump right in to a conversation that we had with David Frangioni, an exceptional artist and technician in music technology. Today, I'm actually at Pop Studios with the one and only David Frangioni. Welcome, David. Thank you. Great to be here. And David is a sound visionary who combines his expertise in music, automation, business, and technology to create state-of-the-art audiovisual solutions and help aspiring musical artists emerge into the spotlight through personal development. Hey, no, no, no big deal. Just changing the world over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, take every day, just trying to make the most of every day. I was really interested in your uh, your story because we are sort of like. Uh, the same age and got into music and technology around the same time and uh, both sort of stumbled into the whole electronic music and music technology and recording and except that you made a career out of it and uh, but but this is really really fascinating to me like the earliest days of music technology and audio and video technology Versus where we are today, it seems like we're in the the Star Trek holodeck compared to back then. Yeah, it's true. It's been quite a journey, and uh, it's all happened very organically uh, as far as my career, starting out as a drummer. Uh, when I was two years old, I started playing the drums, and as it turns out, uh, I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye, at two and of course, that was a very traumatic experience for my parents and brother and myself. And um, the drums and music were a refuge. It turns out that because of the retinoblastoma, because of the cancer, they had to remove my right eye. So I've been blind in my right eye ever since, basically my whole life. Wow. And um, and then the childhood that went along with dealing with the having the one eye and the retinoblastoma and all that was, you know, uh, kind of tough and definitely shaped uh, my life, my character, a lot of things that happened and music and drumming being kind of the epicenter mm. of all of that. And then I just immersed myself in playing the drums. And by the time I was 12, I was doing gigs all the time and had already started taking drum lessons and uh, my parents saw that I was serious and got me a, a used four-piece Rogers kit. Nice. Um, which was, yeah, dream come true. <laughs> and then as I got more and more serious about the drums and started studying with some really in- incredible uh, greats, Joe Morello, Alan Dawson, mm-hmm, yeah. Lester Merle, Rod Morgenstein, wow. um, I was in search of the, you know, the, the most... I could learn about drumming and technology. Now we're in like 1985, 86. Mm. Technology was so prominent in modern recordings. Right. At that time, it was new. And so I, as as part of my drumming vocabulary, I, you know, I was reluctantly getting into drum electronics and technology. So not only drum machines, but triggering drum sounds right. and all things electronic. And of course that led me to MIDI, 
which then led me to a much wider palette of technological colors and choices from which to choose. Uh, and then that led to putting entire rigs together mm. for people, and it just grew and grew. And I found that I loved technology even as much or more than the drums. And I yeah. quickly went from applying drum technology to my everyday life to actually immersing myself in MIDI and uh, becoming a MIDI consultant. And the the thing about MIDI, I always had a love-hate relationship with it because, you know, because of the type of music that it tended to um, excel at. And I always wanted to use MIDI to make realistic sounding stuff. And I remember talking to a salesman when I was, I think I was a Korg M1 I was buying at the time. And I said, yeah, I want to do sequences of like jazz combos that actually sound good and and I remember what he said to me. He said, yeah, that'll pass. <laughs> oh, my God. As in you'll oh, stop God. worrying about it? Yeah, you'll get over it. <laughs> no, he should have put you into Kurzweil at that time. <laughs> you'll get into the weird stuff. Don't worry. Well, it's uh, it's amazing the journey that's uh, occurred since the early days of MIDI. Um, and, you know, just being there for so many breakthroughs, the DX7, the D50, as you mentioned, the M1, which turned out to be one of the most iconic pieces that has ever been released, yeah, uh, yeah. the drum machines of the day, and then watching just everything evolve. And um, it's really been an incredible, incredible learning experience. Do you actually know when you've built a breakthrough device? I mean, I think everybody tries to, but ultimately it's the market that validates that that's a breakthrough device, right? Yeah, it is. And, and a lot of times the market's driven by a hit song. Mm. Um, you know, or, you know, you listen to, uh, like the, the iconic Michael Jackson records and there's like so many DX7 yeah. sounds and Fairlight sounds and, you know, and even some Synclav and, and then that kind of defines like everybody wants that sound or, or those options. And I remember Eric Clapton's remake of After Midnight that Phil Collins produced with that D50 flute mallet thing. That just like now everybody wants a D50. Exactly. And the D50 is a great example. I remember when I was putting rigs together, I, I had artists that would say to me, um, I want four D50s. You know, I mean, we've just come so far because now that you have the D50 in the rolling cloud and you can have 50 D50s and, <laughs> and it doesn't take up any more space. But then, you know, you'd need another rack just to haul D50s around. <laughs> but it, it, to me now, it also speaks to this idea as a device creator that you kind of want to have an artist in mind. Like the hit is so important that as you're, as you're making something, you might want to, you've yep. got to sort of collaborate with someone early on to have that success. You do, um, or at least have the perspective. You know, I think that's what's made companies like Roland especially. Um, if you look at their history and how many iconic electronic music devices they've produced, um, they really, when you look at the culture inside the company, you know, there's, yes, there's all of the Japanese engineering and all of the business stuff, but there's a really strong musical foundation in mm. the people that are involved in that company. And as a result, you have the 808, the 909, mm. the Juno 106, you know, and we just keep going through history. Um, and you, but you're right. You know, it all it's all about the music. Do you see that as a feedback system that they're really listening to musicians or that they have such great vision? I think it's a combination. And I also think that it's um I, I think their vision is 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 really strong. I, I think that what 
Roland's done, what Korg and Yamaha did, and, and even Oberheim and Emu mm -hmm. and Akai, mm -hmm. even you know in the '80s going into the '90s. Um, I think that there was a lot of vision. That you, you have to you have to have a bit of both. If you don't, then you you know it's not going to last long. You really have to be in touch with what people need and what people uh, you know are, are using to make music. I, I want to get into the home automation and technology stuff, but but first, um, I, lay on us some stories about Aerosmith and some. I mean, drop some names, man. You've got you've worked with a lot of people that everybody everybody knows. Well, it's been an, an incredible journey, you know, no pun intended, because I worked <laughs> with them. <laughs> but um, but really, it's you know, being such a fan of music and being inspired by it as a kid. And kind of coming from nothing other than having a dream and a very supportive family, which is a lot, but yeah. doesn't give you any means. Right. Um, so I really had to do it from scratch the hard way by just working really hard and learning and learning and learning and then going out there and, uh, you know, manifesting. And fortunately, I was able to build a clientele. And as you have with any career that um you know has a lot of great artists it's a, there's a lot of word of mouth so mm. you know i've worked with some great artists aerosmith i've worked with since 89 you built studios for them right uh done a lot for them uh i've been their in-house i was their in-house engineer for over 10 years um wow. so built their studios worked on the records during the pre-production and just kind of their their go-to guy and and it turns out that those years because um, remember, I'm from Boston, and the band was based out of Boston right. at that time. And those years ended up being really prolific years for the band because that was their second time around. Right. So they broke up for a bit, and then they came back with permanent vacation, which mm -hmm. I wasn't working with them at that time. And then when they got to Pump, the follow-up record, I got involved at the tail end of Pump and um, and stayed with them all the way through just push play as far as like kind of day-to-day. Wow. And it ends up that, you know, there's just these awesome records that ended up coming out of it. You know, Pump, Get a Grip, South of Sanity, Big mm. Ones, Nine Lives, Just Push Play, um, mm. and a lot of great music that I was able to be a part of. Yeah, so cool. Roger Nichols, um, notorious engineer for Steely Dan and others. and Yeah, one of my best friends, God bless him. He yeah. was he was my one of my literally closest and best friends for you know, I mean, 15, 15 years, wow. maybe longer, almost 20. I mean, he was my hero, my best friend, my mentor, like a brother to me. Unbelievable and, ears and just a very nice guy. Oh, yeah. He he was a genius. He was a sonic genius. Mm -hmm. He was an, an, uh, an engineering genius, not only behind a console uh, or with a DAW, but um, you know, as an, a product developer, I mean, think about the Wendell. Yeah, the Wendell, you the know. first drum machine ever, right? Yeah, incredible. And hey, nineteen was the debut. Was was that it? Or yep, yep, I believe so. I mm. think that's where he first. It, I don't think it was invented then, but the concept he started using computer generated drum replacement. I mm. think uh, Nightfly was yeah. when uh, when Wendell made its world debut. Okay. And uh, I did a, I've done sample CDs that have actually been really successful. Thank God. Started with Dance Industrial One, and we did a second one, Dance Industrial Two, mm -hmm. and then I ended up doing one with Steve Smith, and then another one with um, Todd Zuckerman from Styx and Brian Fraser Moore. Hmm. Um, and on the Todd Zuckerman disc, 
Roger and I collaborated on that disc, and we put, uh, with his blessing, we put the original Wendell sounds on the disc. So, <laughs> so cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Elliot Shiner, you work with him? No. I've met him a bunch of times because we both did DTS mixes, but I don't, I've mm-hmm. never worked with him. Mm-hmm. Hey, David, did were you really on the Osbournes? Yeah, believe it or not. That's crazy. <laughs> true. So <laughs> h- how did that whole thing happen? Um, what happened was uh, he, Mark Hudson and Ozzy were working together and um, Oz, and Mark referred me to Ozzy to build a studio. As it turns out, Ozzy had never had his own studio. And um, he asked Mark, you know, who should I bring in? And, and I was referred. So I was um, at uh, an Italian local dive in Miami where I live, like just having a late night dinner with a bunch of guys that I was working with. And uh, it's like 8.30 at night. And Ozzy had just started the Ozfest that year. Mm. And uh, this is like 2003. So it's probably like around June of 03. And I pick up the phone and uh, a British gentleman says, could you hold for Mr. Osborne, please? And I thought it was a joke, <laughs> right? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll hold for Mr. Osborne. I'm <laughs> watching the Osbournes on TV all the time, right. just thinking that it's so priceless. You so know? funny. Yeah. It's, it's a great mm. show. And and it was you know it was monster monster hit at that time. It was mm. the biggest. It was the highest rated cable TV show in history at at that time. So and I was a fan of it, and I was a huge fan of Ozzy as an artist. And I had you know going back to Black Sabbath sure. and Blizzard of Oz. And so anyway, uh, the call comes in, and I hold for Mr. Osborne, and all of a sudden. I hear, uh, uh, Dave, uh, <laughs> c- can you build me a studio, That's Bev? perfect. And I said, uh, Ozzy? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah this one, Ozzy, Bev. I said, yeah, can you build me a studio? And I said, yeah, of course. What kind of studio do you want? He said, well, I want a studio with this and then some drums. Oh, you want a drum room? No, I want a studio with a whole drums and then we're going to take the, the and move that over. And I said, oh, you want a vocal booth? No. I said, oh, oh, oh okay. I said, well, Ozzy, whatever, whatever you want, I'll build it. He said, okay, uh, hold for my assistant. And he hands the phone back to the first guy, and he goes, "Did you get all that?" And I said, "No, I didn't get all that, but I'll be in LA tomorrow. I'll be in LA tomorrow, and uh, we'll build him a studio." And so I fly to LA because Ozzy was satelliting on the Ozfest. He, at that time, he wasn't staying in the city, so he mm. was he was flying to New Mexico when he called me, and he was back the same night. So I flew to LA the next day, had a day off, and. Um, met with him and went over everything and we really hit it off and I really understood what he wanted to accomplish there. How? And, and <laughs> Yeah, right. Do no, you have a translator? You know what? It's it's Ozzy is and Sharon and the whole family really, but Ozzy is such an amazing guy. Everything you hear is true. He is hmm. just extraordinary. What a what a kind, funny, warm brilliant artist and just a wonderful person and uh i was it was so they were so welcoming and mm-hmm. you know i'm a guy there to build their studio they don't right. have to be that nice to no. me right but yeah, they yeah. but they were and the whole time i worked with them um they were you know they were amazing and so we built a studio and as it turns out 
this is in the heart of the Osbournes, you know, moment of the show. Mm. So they were on hiatus between seasons two and three when I flew there that day and and talked to Ozzy about doing the studio. By the time we were working on the studio, season three had started filming and season four right after that. And so I was I was around the Osbournes a lot from like oh three to like oh eight or oh nine. Wow. And uh, working so, on the studio the whole time? No, I did the studio, um, and then uh, they asked me to come in and help them with all the home stuff because there was like a, a running gag on the show in the first two seasons that Ozzy couldn't get the TV off the Weather Channel. <laughs> so, in, so in season three, I reprogrammed all the rooms, and that was like we 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 got past the gag. So now he could go past it. And what I did is, at the time, Crestron had these wireless touchscreens that had hard buttons down the side of each of the screens. So five mm. on the right, five on the left, and then a touchscreen in the middle. So the buttons were in the bezel and you could engrave the buttons. So in the bottom right-hand corner of every touch panel in every room, I had it engraved Aussie <laughs> in capital letters. And then the gag was just press Aussie. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, it went over good on the show apparently, but um, they could now use their technology and watch TV and just do, you know, stuff that everybody wants to do in their home. And then, you know, I was just working on a myriad of projects. They had a home in Malibu and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then they moved from the show studio location in Beverly Hills to another home in a different city. And we did a new studio there. Um, and Christina Aguilera bought the house where we did the first studio. So, you know, everything just kind of grows and, and, uh, and moves on. And I got to imagine you're still maintaining Christina Aguilera's studio then. Well, she sold it. Oh. And then, so, and then the, you want to know the crazy thing is the guy that bought it calls me up. And if you saw what we went through while we were building that studio, I could write a book just on that one project. Right. I mean, you got to remember the Osbournes, uh, they have their neighbors are irate that the show's going on and that, yeah. you know, their their posh Beverly Hills home has 3,000 tourists an hour driving by it. So, <laughs> like, you had no neighborhood support. Right, yeah. And then you have, you know, you have the city of Beverly Hills and you have MTV cameras everywhere. And I've got to build a studio and I had I had just the length of time of OzFest, which was less than three months huh. from scratch. And we're not talking about just electronics and equipment and wiring. I mean, the actual studio. There was a guest house building, but I had to gut it and build a real studio in it. And um, there were so many stories and so many, you know, just as you would expect, just unforeseen um, challenges. But we got through it. We finished it on time. Ozzy was really happy. He did records in it. Kelly did a record in it. And yeah, everybody was happy with it. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, there were just huge challenges. And um, and so then Christina takes it over and then she does her own thing in that studio. And then I get a call from the gentleman that bought the house from Christina. And he goes, um, yeah, you know, I got your name because of your history with building this whole room. Um, I, I need you to come out and rip the whole thing out. We want to put it back to a guest house. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Uh, I was just like, you know what? I think you need to find somebody else. Yeah, to it's do like, it. come kill I'm not your baby. dismantling my baby. You know, that that's sucks. crazy. Uh, 
Oh man, so I mean that when taking that thing apart, we had so much sound isolation. I mean, MTV did a gag one day because Ozzy likes to listen to music very loud sometimes. No, <laughs> and uh, so, hard so they did a gag and they had me in front of a of a TV. We had a TV in the control room, and they were like, you know. Um, 120 dB, you know, a, a siren, you know, and an alarm, like 130 dB, uh, an airplane taking off, 140 dB, the threshold of pain has, you know, <laughs> is, has exceeded, you know, your ability to, to sit in the room, and 150 dB, Ozzy's listening volume, right? and they did this, this whole gag, and then here we are, and you couldn't hear it outside of the studio, we had it. We had it sounding great inside the room, and we had it isolated so that it didn't go outside of the room mm. again with all the politics. And then he's gonna he ripped it all out. Whoever bought it, wow! I want to get into how you got into technology and to what extent. Um, were you always fascinated with gizmos and gadgets? Uh, where did that fascination come from? Well, no, I I, I really wasn't. Um, in my early days, I didn't like computers at all, and well, uh, they kind of sucked. Didn't well, they? it was li- it was you know line based, you know like auto exec bat DOS, right? Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I was that that just didn't inspire me at all because at that at that time in my uh, you know just before like eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, mm. um, I was inspired by Carl Palmer on a stainless steel drum kit in, yeah. in, in a stadium playing you know, Buddy Rich inspired Lex and mm-hmm. being this extraordinary drummer and um, and rock and roll and Led Zeppelin and all of that. But, um, you know, what happened when I caught the technology bug around 16 or 17 years old, which happened, as we talked about, with drums and MIDI, yeah. it really clicked and and it's I've my whole life has been technology. And I absolutely am about gadgets and gizmos and the newest and the most cutting edge and what's going to be the newest and the most cutting edge because you always when you have a career based around technology you know you just it's not good enough to be great at what's happening right now and really have it down you've got to have your eye on where it's going because people are hiring you to consult them and to put you know projects and systems together and you you know they don't expect that in a year or two they're going to be back to square one. They expect that there's going to be modularity and flexibility and upgradability and that you understand enough of what's going on to put it together for the long term. Yeah. Do you remember that moment when you decided you were going to not just be a consumer of technology, but a producer of technology? Well, I'll tell you, um, the probably one of the most groundbreaking moments was seeing the Chick Corea electric band. Oh. Uh, the original, you know, Patatucci, right. Weckl, Chick, mm. uh, 85, 86, like the first, 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 you know, they did a bunch of dates, I think even before the record came out. Dave Weckl's not human. No, he's, he's, to me, one of the greatest drummers ever. He's four drummers. And, he's got four limbs. <laughs> yep. He's four drummers. No, he is. He's he's one of my favorite drummers and a real inspiration. And, and he ended up forming part of my life, really, because I happened to turn the TV on one day and it was totally random. We only got four channels, right? Mm-hmm. There was no cable TV at this time. And if there was, we didn't have it. And turn the TV on, and Dave Weckl is just starting a drum solo in Rumble, right? Which is his, like, the, you know, the big spotlight piece right. for him with that band. 
And um, as he's playing the solo, I'm watching and listening to, I don't even think I knew who he was, but because I saw Chick there, I kind of started putting it together because I had heard of the band mm. um, and I was a huge Chick Corea fan. And you're still in Boston at this time? I'm in Boston. Yeah. And um, he starts playing this solo and it's superhuman. And mm. then the next thing you know, in the middle of the solo, he hits a button and he's on his acoustic drum kit. He's playing a percussion solo and there's you know, kungas and bongos and electronic drum sounds and a cowbell mm. and a tambourine on the elec- on the acoustic drum set. So is he triggering him with the acoustic drums or does he have like an octopad or something? He's triggering them. Wow. And so, and, and, he's, and he's such a virtuoso that you're watching and listening to this. Right. And that was the moment. Because remember, that's the perfect storm for me because I'm just getting into electronics mm. and drums are my life. And here I'm watching like the the greatest drummer I'd ever seen uh, play this combination. Uh, and he and Carl Palmer, because Carl Palmer mm. did some electronic stuff earlier as well. Yeah. But this really hit me at that moment and ended up shaping a big part of my life and career. And, and wouldn't you know that I went on to work with Chick Corea uh-huh. and went on to work with Dave Weckl. So um, it's, you know, it's dream come true. Those, uh, I'm, I'm conjuring up images of these D-drum triggers. Is that that's what a lot of drummers were using at the time? They, they were these little um, piezos with clamps that clamped onto the side of your drums. Well, before those, that's right. They're piezos. Um, the D drums came a little later. This is when you would stick the trigger on. It would be double sided, oh. and and you'd act the 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 tape would be double sided, and you'd take it off, and it would go on the shell. Okay. Or on the drum head. Mm. And um, very, we're talking really, yeah. really early days. There weren't a lot of trigger options. There weren't a lot of trigger modules. Right. And at that time, it was still split between guys triggering direct into um, a, a sound device and doing it all in internally and just being limited to whatever that device had. And then the other half of the guys were going into a trigger to MIDI device, mm. setting all of the parameters, and then that opened them up to whatever was available uh, in on the MIDI palette. And some guys were even doing a combination of both, and I, I would do a switcher. I mean, it's so crazy to think back to those days, but <laughs> you'd, I'd do a switcher where the triggers would either go directly to the sound module that didn't have MIDI but had direct voltage in, mm. and then you'd flick a, a toggle, and then the other side of it would go to a TMI, a trigger to MIDI interface, and then, you know, you'd have that set of palettes. I mean, it was so, <laughs> it was such a different world. And it seems like popular music in the 80s became all about technology to the point where when you were watching an MTV video, you didn't know if there were real instruments being played or not. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> yep. Because if it, I was, look, I'm the biggest Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and Van Halen fan and Beatles fan, right. Stones fan on I the like planet. I like people who play. Uh, big time. And, and Buddy Rich and, and right down the line. But if it weren't for that music and it weren't for the technology that was really being developed and, and had a, you know, had a consumer base to, mm. you know, to drive it, mm. uh, you know, my career would have taken a whole different path. And, well, yeah. and there's a lot of, we needed to be there to get where we are now, where yeah. we have like a virtually unlimited set of options, uh, when un- virtually unlimited configurable, you know, parameters and, and setups, but, and it needed to start there. And uh, yeah. that's what was missing in the 70s, right? I mean, you listen to like groundbreaking electronic uh, sounds like Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and, 
and you know amazing artists um joe zow and all what he was doing oh, yeah. and of course chick um and you know but because it was so niche that and midi hadn't come along yet everybody had their own system so you, as you remember like roland had their thing and right. oberheim had their thing and you know once you bought into it you were stuck with that that manufacturer and we're still kind of that way in the software world these days you sort of pick a tribe and you you get you get locked in at least with service providers and things like that but um herbie hancock has got to be one of your idols because he masterfully blended you know fusion jazz rock with midi and technology and all sorts of great sounds and still does to this day yeah, I, I've never worked with him, but he's definitely an idol. Um, he's touring right now with Vinnie Calayuda, who's one of my favorite drummers as well. And yeah. Herbie's a legend. I remember when I first started working with Chick, and Chick at the time was living in L.A., and I was living in Boston, and this is like late 80s, and he said to me, come out to L.A., and you know we'll work together even more because I need you here, and, and I'll introduce you to Herbie, and you can start working with him. <laughs> and uh, and it was so tempting because it was like, oh, my God. Yeah, right. But I stayed in Boston, stayed with Aerosmith and uh, the other, you know, stuff that I had going on and a lot of things that were basing out of there, but were going to other cities. Of course, New York was close. Right. Um, and, yeah, just so it never happened with Herbie. Now, I kind of think the, you kind of do these marquee projects, it seems. Like the, I'm looking at the at the audio one site and just these beautiful mm. beautiful homes uh i've put together a lot of my own stuff in my house and sometimes i've had the walls off and sometimes i haven't so you, i think you have to approach it differently when you're you're not able to retrofit everything right you mean from scratch yeah it got i mean yeah, it's got to be it's absolutely a, it was, you know, I had a flood in my basement in 2015, and folks who listen to the show know this very well. And we tore the walls off, and my favorite part was we got to rewire everything. <laughs> yep, that's right. No, it is retro and and new construction are are definitely different approaches on a lot of levels. Um, I started out with home theater as a real passion to. I, I just wanted to experience what I couldn't even hear in the theater. Because mm. where I grew up, we had two theaters in my town. And, you know, and when by the time Star Wars got to them, I think it was 1979, you know? So wow. I mean, it was, it, was, it was really out there. So there was no surround sound. And the whole thing that, uh, you know, that I really wanted to, I was reading a lot about it and I would go to, a, I would find a, a, a really great sounding theater uh, that at that time THX was just starting to come around, and so I was I was searching out like what what is what's the the reference? What is this? What can it sound like? What right. are these? What are these mixes actually doing? Right. Um. It, for the movies, for you know, and and then Laserdisc came along, and oh, yeah. and now we had a the ability to have a digital soundtrack, even though it was an analog based format. A lot of people don't realize. Um. And this is before DVD, of course. And with VHS, Pro, you know, we had ProLogic and then we had Laserdisc, which eventually offered Dolby Digital by the 90s. But in the middle of all that, I wanted to really understand it. So I just started like almost like a mad scientist, just put a, a like a surround lab in my den, which was very small, but um, I knew what the room sounded like and I had a surround system in it. And I just would replace components all the time, and I would do shootouts with 
different amplifiers, different decoders, different mm. converters, different subwoofers, mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it ended up being an education that is uh, irreplaceable. And I ended up being kind of at the forefront of surround because here I was, you know, really knowledgeable and and educated, you know, listener uh, in the home surround world. And then when DTS came along, uh, I was recommended to them. To, but it started with your own personal home studio project. That's right. It started with my own. It wasn't. I wasn't even in the studio yet. This was, and there was no mixing. Oh, just home theater. Yep. Yeah. And it was, and and it was home theater by definition, but the screen was a television. Okay. So it wasn't. I, I didn't have enough space to do like real front projection and Ferrugia at the time, and like right, all right. the hot technologies that looked really great. So the video part of it wasn't very good, but the audio was was my education. So you were talking about how you were there at the beginning of DTS and Dolby. Well, yeah, because what ended up happening by the time DTS decided to go from the Jurassic Park theater only experience to bringing the format to consumers. Um, they were seeking out, they had a game plan. Um, and that game plan was, we're going to mix, we're going to take the movies that we have control over, which Spielberg was a part of it. So the Amblin network of, you know, Casper and, and, um, and Jurassic Park, of course, and a few Mm -hmm. other movies, we're going to take those, we're going to encode them with DTS and launch that to consumers. And then we want something, we got to take a different angle. We don't just want to go head to head with Dolby on movies. We want to we want to do music in surround. Yeah, and they they called me and they said, "Look, we uh you know we know your experience with all of these artists um, on the pro side, and we also understand through the grapevine that you have a very extensive background on the consumer side, mm. and that's what we need." And mm. so they brought me out and we worked on the first surround mixes for DTS and and kind of got the ball rolling on how those mixes were going to sound and, mm. and play back to the public and launch the format. So, of course, they had to sound better than anything um, because this was what was going to prove to the press and to the world that, you know, we needed another format besides yeah. Dolby. And on top of that, it led to a whole host of challenges of, okay, well, how is the studio going to get set up to be able to mix for these soundtracks, these music uh surround mixes and how is the consumer playback going to deal with it because it was really almost a second thought when in the pro logic days mm. then thx started to try to improve that and kind of glue it together and give people a standard and a specification is that george lucas's thing yeah 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 and, and his whole idea was if you if we put the thx license and logo on this piece of equipment let's say a decoder um then if you buy a THX amp and you buy THX speakers, everything will have the proper filter settings, have yeah. the proper crossovers already built in. So like it was, it was set to be really a simplistic way of achieving high performance, but mm. you were still getting matrixed surround sound and you were, you know, there was really not much steering going back there because they weren't discrete channels. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just, it was a four channel system with mm. no point one, right? So you had your left, center, right, and you had your backs. Mm. And then manufacturers started to play with that steering logic and started to apply EQ curves so that the back channels were different. So you had the perception using delay and EQ on those channels that all of a sudden there was a lot more motion going mm. on back there. And it mm-hmm. worked. 
If you listen to Return of the Jedi uh, back in the late 80s uh, on one of those systems, you know, it sounded a little, it sounded more discreet than what was really going on. But by the time we got true 5.1 in the consumer world, uh, which was Dolby Digital and DTS, this is 95, 96, um, you know, now the whole consumer playback setup had to be changed and developed drastically because uh, it, it really mattered what was going on. And now you needed to know how, you know, you had to understand distances and you had to understand things that weren't really that, you know, audible and that important prior to discrete digital playback. Right. Isn't it ironic that with all of the great technology that we've uh, invented, we as humans have invented to, you know, 96 kilohertz audio and super high definition, everything that it all comes down to a crappy sounding MP3 file in the end. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't that amazing, right? So and that's, and that's funny you should bring that up because as we're going through these DTS years and, um, and I had a front row seat, I was mixing a lot of content uh, into surround both for DTS and for other uh, content providers. Yeah, you did a Steely Dan Two Against Nature with, surround sound with, with Roger. With Roger, uh, and I did a lot of mixes for MTV and for BET and for Music in High Places. I mean, mm. literally over well over a hundred, and um, and those were all coming out on DVD, but yeah. some on CD, but most of them on DVD. And um, and as that's all going on, and we're having these think tank meetings. You know, okay, you know, we have DTS 20, 20 bit, right? Whereas nobody else had 20 bit at that mm. time. And now we're going to, you know, we're going to go head to head with DVD audio came around with the Meridian lossless. And uh, then we had SACD, Sony's competitor, mm. mm -hmm. which was originally only stereo. Um, but then it, 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 you know, it upgraded to surround with the, uh, with the DSD and, all of this is going on and we're all doing these listening tests and talking about higher resolution, mm -hmm. more channels, yeah. better equipment to play it back on. Like we can all see this this world of, of utopian, you know, audible bliss. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of that, within two years, nobody cares about surround sound for music. Right. Nobody cares about 96, 192, DSD, whatever. And it's, yep. and it's all, like you said, like, horrible compressed mp3 and here with we are earbuds yeah with horrible headphones the ipod just sort of blew the whole thing yeah. up portability is more important than sound quality to the average consumer yeah i think therein lies the real problem it's like you'd sit down and try and compare you know sacked cd and dts and all these different multi-channel formats and the average person simply cannot hear a difference and then you throw in one of the matrix formats where they're just simulating the whole thing and again the average listener can't tell any difference well there was that story that ethan weiner told us richard about roger nichols and and i was talking to david about this and he remembers it during the two against nature recording they did simultaneous recordings on 96k and 44.1 and 16-bit versus 24 24-bit and uh, in parallel and mixed them and at the end of the day when they compared the two mixes nobody in the studio including roger nichols who has the best ears in the world had the best ears in the world could tell the difference wow and I, I mean, I think it's one of the challenges you get into with some of this stuff. And then, they, of course, then Apple blows everything up with the iPod and you're listening on earbuds anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And and that's why I'm I'm really, you know, blessed to have worked on collaborations like Noel Lee, the head monster, um, who was one of the original uh, founders of Beats, put all those original headphones together for Jimmy and Dre and started Monster Cable 40 years ago and built it up into an absolute powerhouse. And, and his passion is sound quality. So I will, I'll say our passion, Noel and mine, is really a relentless pursuit of sound quality. So when you listen to the Monster headphones, whether they're the in-ears or the over-ears, whether they're wired, wireless, et cetera, et cetera, the sound quality of the headphones is really, really good. But as you said, so many people are still just using the earbuds that come out, come with, you know, with the, the out of the box. Yeah. Um, and maybe those new wireless uh, ear pods. Um, and they don't realize that even with the same content compressed and all, they can have a much improved listening experience. And life's too short to, you know, to listen to music uh, with bad fidelity. There's no reason for it. Do you find that um, people's reactions are, are still, uh, awestruck when they come to your house and sit in your home theater and listen to a music, a piece of music, a music video or whatever that's in, you know, ultra high fidelity. And do you still get amazed, you know, amazed reactions from people or? Yeah, I think that um, true reference quality playback is something that a lot of people haven't heard. And when they do hear it, they even people who necessarily don't care about sound quality or they don't believe they could hear the difference if they did care about it, mm. whatever their opinion is, you know, sound at the end of the day is as much about emotion and how you feel and what it does for you than anything. Because mm. that's, you know, we're, you know, that's what it's about. And right. so, so when you listen on a reference quality system and you really truly hear the nuances and you hear things, which to me, this is the coolest part of all of it, whether it's music or movies, is you hear things that you've watched this movie or listened to this song 3,000 times and you've never heard that right. part of it. Isn't that the coolest yeah, thing in the world? Yeah, that is the coolest thing in the world. And that's what happens when you're on these reference systems is, is like, I remember the first time that I heard Asia, the song Asia, um, on a mobile fidelity, high resolution playback on a reference quality system in that middle carnival section. Yeah. And that whistle blows in the right speaker, yeah, like that, s- really loud. That, like it's that, it's yeah. supposed to shock you. Yeah. And Roger was telling me, you know, the whole idea behind it later on. But, but at first when I heard it, I jumped out of my shoes and that's what they wanted you to experience. They mm-hmm. wanted you to kind of, you know, you were kind of tranquil in this 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 interlude and then all of a sudden they wanted to try to kind of wake you up before they got to the next section of the music. And you don't even hear that when you listen on a bad system. Right. It all just kind of plays, you know, forward and you, you hear the part, but it doesn't really move you at all. On a reference system, you know, it's a whole other experience and that's what makes it fun. I think what happens is sounds get masked don't they be with instruments that um, may share some of the same frequency spectrum and especially if they're in the same pan space without a doubt yeah and you don't you wouldn't necessarily they would might even cancel each other out on a bad system well it's that absolutely right and the dynamic range has a huge huge impact on it the signal mm-hmm. to noise the noise floor yeah um, I remember pl- playing back a, a scene um, out of like Godzilla or Jack and the Beanstalk, or one of these movies where it was very dark 
and we're on a reference system and I'm playing it back for a friend of mine and um, the it's raining and you hear like footsteps in the distance. Like, But there were so many little nuances yeah. to what the sound designer had done with this film that it was almost like watching a different film if you had just watched it and listened to it in stereo or on a flat system. Mm. You, it would, it was just a whole. It was like another movie. See, I could see how you went from audio engineering and building the recording spaces into the home theater piece as well, just to, to, because you get all that. Do you get into like I'm looking at the latest stuff and thinking these vibrators under the seat and even motion control seats they seem obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, that's an acquired taste. Um, I don't normally recommend them if somebody wants a couple of them in their room for their kids or whatever. The you know the D box is probably the most popular. Um, but yeah, that's something that to me it's very novelty. And after you know you do it once or twice here or there, you, you probably don't want to do it very much. Sometimes people put kickers under the seats. They right. just want that extra bass punch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but overall, you know, using, putting the room together properly and setting up the electronics and specifying them properly for the room that you've just designed acoustically and dimensionally, et cetera, uh, that gets you, you know, tremendous performance and you don't need a lot of those other gimmicky things. But again, you know, you, my career is serving a client, right? right? So I have my own setup where I wouldn't necessarily use a D box, but, um, but you know, sometimes clients, you know, they have they want at least a couple of the chairs to do it, and then they can always turn it off. And everybody has different goals of what they want to accomplish. And my, you know, my job and uh, responsibility is to make sure that we exceed whatever they have for expectations. Yeah, and I mean, you're fielding a client base that can be somewhat eclectic, I imagine. Eclectic and unlimited uh, in every way. The only, you know, the only limitation most of my clients have is whatever imagination they come up with sure. with, uh, with what they want. Yeah. Have you ever gone down like the gaming room side? Like I, I see these amazing builds for racing cars and flying simulators. Yes, so we forth. have. Absolutely. I mean, we've put we've put gaming systems together that uh you know they're amazing and the they're most people you know some people have bought a house for what these gaming systems cost wow yeah. right i mean they really they can really get up there with multi you know super high def screens state-of-the-art screens subwoofers subwoofers speakers <laughs> all the configuration and yeah i can really yeah gaming is some of our clients uh, take that very seriously and have the means to have, you know, like dream gaming systems. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. If you're going to build wow. a room to watch a movie, you could also build a room to play your favorite game at its limits. Yep, and we have clients that have done both. Yeah, no, I can totally cool. see that. And again, you get into more of this, the literally, how, at what point are you literally, you're rebuilding an Air Force flight simulator? <laughs> yeah, it, it's incredible. And and the cool thing, right, you guys can can relate to this, right, as I, I'm sure a lot of uh, other pros out there can, where every project you do, you, you know, it's cumulatively evolving and you're learning and you're applying it to the next project and the next project and the next project. And you go, I go back to my roots in the 80s between, you know, all that I learned playing the drums, learning the drums, mm. playing in the studio, playing live all the way through all the MIDI, 
and, you know, just all the progressions from the pro world, the home world. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, the home theater side of things that that evolved for me into home automation because what ended up happening was clients uh, couldn't use their theater. Like in my theater at home, before I went pro with those services in the 90s, um, I would just turn everything on manually and and manually switch. And like, I didn't even think twice about it, right? Because right. we're all geeks. So like, you know, knowing what input it was and, true. you know, how to set the amps and all that's, that. That's hard for mere mortals. Absolutely. And it's inconvenient and it's not scalable. So if you have five different people who want to come in and use the theater and, and one person knows how, then that kind of defeats the purpose. So home automation, I kind of found by default because my clients were saying, um, you know, the theater's great, but if my wife can't use it, then, you yeah, know, what's what, the what point? are we doing here? Yeah, right. right. Sure. So I got into home automation, which at that time sucked. And I really did not like the options. I didn't find them scalable or reliable or in any way robust. Um, and then I sought out more and more, you know, more, I would call it, um, solid solutions, which led me at that time, now we're in the 90s, the early days of Crestron, which is a control system that's very scalable. And um, at that time, you programmed it in DOS. And uh, and it, and funny enough, it was not easy to learn how to program that system. To make the system easy for people to use was actually very complicated behind mm. the scenes to actually put all that programming together. And uh, they had a language called Simple. S-I-M-P-L, which they still use to this day, but then it was simple for DOS, which was symbol-intensive master programming language. And you'd go in and you'd literally write all of this code um, to route, you know, when this button's pressed, then, you know, this will trigger. And, Mm. you know, you could trigger IR codes, you could trigger, you know, relays, you could trigger digital values, you could trigger, you know, 232, 485, et cetera, et cetera. Lighting, I'm sure. Lighting started to come on on uh, board around that time. Uh, it was m- way more complicated than it is today, and and you had far fewer options back then. But but lighting got added. So now from the same touchscreen, someone sitting in, in their you know in their theater on their couch in their villain chair, they hit a button, <laughs> and uh, they kill the lights, start the system, you know, play the disc or you know change the channel, and blinds mm. go down. Very easy. All of that. Stuff. Yep all that and where it started to be able to do all of that was you know really complicated because the the technology hadn't caught up yet so you were you were using makeshift relays and other things and i really was against that because to me i think coming from the pro world where everything is do or die mm. you know there's no there's nothing that you do that is you know, has chance to it, right? You you know, you got you got a live show, you know, an Aerosmith's playing in front of 15,000 people. Any technology I put together has to be extremely robust. So I took that same philosophy to everything that I do and did, and the home world just wasn't there. So I was very, very slow to get into the home automation side of it until Crestron came along and then started to really catch up to what consumers needed. Because mm. I just never wanted to put a system in, whatever it was, pro, home, whatever, and have it fail and have it be something that instead of improving the experience of the person I was working for, it actually made them frustrated. So that was always a real you know, big deal to me. 
Sure. So your main focus is Audio One. The right now, is there anything on the horizon for your next your next venture? Well, lots of great things going on. Audio One is bigger and better than ever, thank God. Um, and we're just doing some incredible projects. We finished the largest home automation project in history residentially wow. um, last year. And I always say when we did it because uh, one day it's not going to be the largest anymore, right? right? <laughs> Whenever you have something in technology that's some, you know, accomplishment, it's only going to last for a short time because mm. someone will outdo it. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, 17 and 18, uh, it was the largest. Uh, we did a home in Naples that's uh, the, the specs on what we installed and wow. what's being controlled there don't even sound like it's real. You know, I mean, literally almost 2,000 zones of lights and oh my God. 40 thermostats and what? 125 cameras, including radar-based cameras where you can get a heat map of a, of a weapon in a trunk while somebody's sitting at the gate in a car and report it back wow. from a database so the end user can see that somebody's at the door and has an M16 in their trunk. Wow. And just on and on and on. And so... So this is obviously where Dr. Evil lives. <laughs> no, no. The man is an incredible... He's a great friend of mine, an incredible guy, yeah. but uh, but really took technology to um, to the furthest degree. Incredible, incredible vision of what he wanted. Wow. So you have that going on with Audio One. Then we broke off the pro side to Frangioni Medias, where we're doing not only recording studios, as we've done for, you know, like 30 years now, mm. but... but to, you know, all digital facilities, you know, really sophisticated church, uh, you know, conference rooms, right. on and on and on. And then, of course, I have uh, All Access IDA, which is Inspire and Develop Artists, which I've taken all that I've learned over the years of how to help an artist go from wanting to, you know, be an artist and sing and perform and write songs to actually helping them create that and get them to the next level. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, and then audioswag.rocks, which is my vision of what kind of swag that I like to wear. We've got cool coffee mugs and shirts and hoodies, and it's all just, you know, like audio geek stuff. That's great. David, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for coming up to New London to, uh, to be with us today. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, it's, it's great to be here, guys, and thank you. And we'll speak to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy. Life is hard. Pay my taxes.